Section 76 of Lay Down Your Arms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Lay Down Your Arms by Bertha von Suttner. Translated by Timothy Holmes. Chapter 18, Part 4. To happiness? No. With recovery, understanding came back, too, and a perception of the horrors that surrounded us. We were in a beleaguered, famishing, freezing, miserable city. The war was still raging on. The winter had come in the meantime, icy cold. I, now for the first time, learned all that had taken place during my long unconsciousness. The capital of the brotherland, Strasbourg, the lovely, the true German, the city German to its core, had been bombarded, its library destroyed. One hundred and ninety-three thousand seven hundred and twenty-two shots had been poured into the town, four or five a minute. Strasbourg was taken. The country fell into wild despair, such a despair as issues in raving madness. People began to hunt in Nostradamus to find prophecies for the present events, and new seers began to put out fresh predictions. Still worse, possessed folks came forward. It was like falling back into a ghost night of the Middle Ages, lighted by the fire of hell. Oh, that I could be among the Bedouins, cried Gustave Flaubert. Oh, that I could be back in the half-conscious dreamland of my illness, cried I, weeping. I was well again now and had to hear and comprehend all the terrible things that were going on around us. Then began again the entries in the red books, and I have lit on the following notes. December 1st. Trochu has established himself on the heights of Champigny. December 2nd. Obstinate fight around Brie and Champigny. December 5th. The cold is becoming constantly more powerful. Oh, the trembling, bleeding, wretched whites who are lying out there in the snow and dying. Even here in the city there's terrible suffering from cold. Business has fallen to nothing. There's no firing to be had. What would not many and one give if there were only two little pieces of wood to be had, even the certainty of the throne of Spain? December 21st. Sorti, out of Paris. December 25th. A small detachment of Prussian cavalry was saluted with musket shot, that is a patriotic duty, from the houses of the village of Troux and Suget. General Kratz commanded the punishment of the villages, that is a commander's duty, and had them burnt. Set them on fire was the word of command, and the men, probably gentle, good-natured fellows, obeyed, that is the soldier's duty, and set fire to them. The flames burst up to heaven, and the poor homesteads fell crashing on man, wife, and child, on flying, weeping, roaring, burning men and beasts. What a joyous, happy, holy Christmas night! Is Paris to be starved out or bombarded as well? Against the last supposition the civilized conscience revolts. To bombard this ville lumière, this point of attraction of all nations, this brilliant home of the arts, bombard it with its irreplaceable riches and treasures like the first fort that comes to hand, it is not to be thought of. The whole neutral press, as I found out afterwards, protested against it. On the other hand, the press of the war party in Berlin was favorable to it. That would be the only way to bring the war to a close and to conquer the city on the Seine. What glory! Besides, it was just these protests which determined certain circles at Versailles to seize this strategic weapon, 
and after all a bombardment is nothing, and so it came about that on December 28th I was writing in shaking characters, here it is, another heavy stroke, a pause, and again. I wrote no further, but I well remember the feelings of that day. In those words, here it is, there lay, along with the terror, a kind of freedom, a relief, a cessation of the nervous expectation that had by that time become well-nigh insufferable. What one had been for so long partly expecting and fearing, partly thinking hardly humanly possible, is now come. We were sitting at déjeuner à la fourchette, i.e. we were taking bread and coffee. Food was getting scarce already. Frederick, Rudolph, the tutor, and I, when the first stroke resounded, all of us raised our heads and exchanged glances. Is that it? But no, it may have been a house-door slamming or something of that sort. Now all was quiet. We resumed the talk that had been interrupted without saying anything about the thought which that sound had caused. Then after two or three minutes it came again. Frederick started up. That is the bombardment, he said, and hurried to the window. I followed him. A hubbub came in from the street. Groups had formed. The people were standing and listening or were exchanging excited words. Now our valet de chambre came rushing into the room, and at the same time a fresh salvo resounded. Oh, monsieur et madame, c'est le bombardement. And now all the other men and maids, down to the kitchen maid, came pushing into the room. In such catastrophes, in the exigencies of war, fire, or water, all distinctions of society fall away, and those threatened all cluster together. All feel equal before danger, much more than before the law, much more than before death, which in its burial ceremonies knows so much of distinction of rank. C'est le bombardement, c'est le bombardement. Everyone who came into the room uttered the same cry. It was horrible, and yet I recollect quite well what I felt. A sort of admiring shudder, a kind of satisfaction at such a mighty experience to be present at a situation so freighted with destiny and not to fear the danger to my own life in it. My pulses beat, and I felt, what shall I call it, the pride of courage. The thing was on the whole less terrible than it had seemed at the first instant. No flaming buildings, no crowds shrieking with terror, no bombshells whizzing continually through the air, but only always this heavy far-off thunder with long and still longer intervals between. One came after a time to get almost accustomed to it. The Parisians chose as objects for a walk those points where the cannon music was best heard. Here and there a bomb would fall in the street and burst, but how rarely did it occur to any given person to happen to be near. It is true that many shells did fall, which carried death, but in the city of a million men these cases were heard of in the same scattered way, in which at other times one is accustomed to see in one's newspaper various cases of accident, without its coming specially near to oneself. Quote, a bricklayer fell from a scaffold four stories high, or a genteelly dressed female threw herself over the balustrades of the bridge into the river, unquote, and so forth. The real grief, the real terror of the populace was not for the bombardment, but hunger, cold, and starvation. But one such account of the death-dealing shot gave me a deep shock. It came in the form of a black-bordered morning card sent to the house. Monsieur et Madame R inform you of the death of their two children, François, aged eight, and Amélie, aged four, who were struck by a bomb coming through the window. Your silent sympathy is requested. 
Silent sympathy. I gave a loud shriek as I read the paper. A thought, a picture flashing before my inner eye with lightning clearness, showed me the whole of the woe which lay in this simple morning notice. I saw our two children, Rudolph and Sylvia. No, I could not pursue the thought. The tidings which one got were scanty. All communication by post was of course cut off. It was by carrier pigeons and balloons only that we had intercourse with the world outside. The rumours that cropped up everywhere were of the most contradictory nature. Victorious sallies were announced, or the information was spread that the enemy was on the point of storming Paris, with a view of setting it on fire in all corners and levelling it to the ground. Or it was asseverated that sooner than allow one German to get within the walls, the commandants of the fort would blow themselves up and the whole of Paris into the air. It was related that the whole population of the country, especially of the south, Le Midi se lève, were falling on the besiegers' rear in order to cut off their retreat and annihilate them to the last man. Along with the false news, some true intelligence also came to us, some whose truth was proved afterwards, such as about a panic that broke out on the road of Grande Luce near Mans, in which horrible deeds took place, soldiers getting beyond control, throwing the wounded out of the railway carriages that were all standing ready, and taking their places themselves. It became more difficult every day to get food. The supply of meat was exhausted. There had for a long time now been no longer any beeves or sheep in the cattle parks that had been formed. All the horses also were soon eaten up. And when the period began, when the dogs and cats, the rats and mice, and finally the beasts in the Jardin des Plantes also, even the poor elephant who was such a favourite had to serve as food, Bread could now be hardly procured. The people had to stand in rows for hours after hours in front of the baker's shops in order to get their little ration, and still most of them had to go empty away. Exhaustion and sickness made death's harvest a rich one. Whilst ordinarily eleven hundred died in a week, the death list of Paris in these times rose to between four thousand and five thousand weekly. That is, there were every day between four hundred and five hundred unnatural deaths that is to say, murders. For if the murderer is not an individual man, but an impersonal thing, namely war, it is not any the less murder. Whose is the responsibility? Does it not lie on those parliamentary swaggerers who in their provocative speeches declared with proud self-assumption, as that Girardin did in the sitting of July 15th, that they took on themselves the responsibility for this war in the face of history? Could then any man's shoulders be sufficiently strong to bear such a load of guilt? Certainly not. But no one thinks of taking such boasters at their word. One day, it was about January 20th, Frederick came into my room with an excited look on his return from a walk in the city. Take your diary in hand, my busy little historian, he called out to me. Today a mighty despatch has come, and he threw himself into a chair. Which of my books, I asked? The Protocol of Peace? Frederick shook his head. Oh, that will be out of use for long. The war which is now being fought out is of too powerful a nature not to proceed to its end and give rise to renewed war. 
On the side of the vanquished it has scattered such a plenty of the seeds of hatred and revenge that a future harvest of war must grow out of them, and on the other side it has brought such magnificent and bewildering successes to the victors that for them an equally great seed-time of warlike pride must grow out of it. What, then, has happened of such importance? King William has been proclaimed German Emperor in Versailles. There is now one Germany, one single empire, and a mighty empire, too. That forms a new chapter in what is called the history of the world, and you may think for yourself how, from the birth of this empire, which is the product of war, that trade will be held high in honor. It is, therefore, from this time the two continental states most advanced in civilization, which will chiefly nourish the war spirit the one in order to return the blow it has received, the other in order to keep the position it has conquered among the powers, from hatred on that side, from love on this, on that side from lust of revenge, on this from gratitude, it comes to the same thing. Shut your protocol of peace. For a long time henceforth we shall abide under the blood and iron sign of Mars. German Emperor, I cried, that really is grand, and I got him to tell me the particulars of this event. I cannot help, Frederick, I said, being pleased at this news. The whole work of slaughter has not then been for nothing, if a great new empire has grown out of it. But from a French point of view it has been for less than nothing, and we too must have surely the right of looking at this war not from one side, the German side only not only as men, but even from the narrow national conception we should have the right to bewail the successes of our enemies and conquerors in 1866. However, I agree with you that the union of dismembered Germany, which has now been attained, is a fine thing, that this agreement of the rest of the German princes to give the imperial crown to the old victor has something inspiring, something admirable about it. The only pity is that this union did not arise from a peaceful but from a warlike exploit. How was it, then, that there was not enough love of country, enough popular power in Germany, even though Napoleon III had never sent the challenge of July 19th, to form of their own will that entity on which their national pride is now to rest, one single people of brothers? Now they will be jubilant. The poet's wish is fulfilled that only four short years ago all were at daggers drawn with each other, that for Hanoverians, Saxons, Frankfurters, Nassars, there was no name more hateful than Prussians, will luckily be forgotten. In place of this, however, the hatred of Germans in this country, how it will ripen from this time. I shuddered. The mere word hatred, I began. Is hateful to you? You're right. As long as this feeling is not banished and outlawed, so long is there no humane humanity. Religious hatred is conquered, but national hatred forms still part of civil education. And yet there is only one ennobling, cheering feeling on this earth, and that is love. We could say something about that, Marta, could we not? I leaned my head on his shoulder and looked up at him while he tenderly stroked the hair off my forehead. We know, he went on, how sweet it is that so much love should reside in our hearts for our little ones, for all the brothers and sisters of the great family of man, whom one would so gladly, I so gladly, spare the pain that threatens them. But they will not. No, no, Frederick, my heart is not yet so comprehensive. I cannot love all the haters. You can, however, pity them. 
and so we talked on a long while in this strain. I still know it all so exactly, because at that time I often, along with the events of the war, entered also fragments of our conversation, which bore upon them into the red volumes. On that day we talked again once more about the future. Paris would now capitulate, the war would be over, and then we could be happy with a safe conscience. Then we recapitulated all the guarantees of our happiness. During the eight years of our married life there had never been a harsh or unfriendly word between us. We had passed through so many sorrows and joys together, and so our love, our unity, was of such a solid kind that no diminution of it was any longer to be feared. On the contrary, we should only be ever more intimately joined together. Every new experience in common would at the same time result in a new tie. When we had become a pair of white-haired old folks, with what joy should we look back on the untroubled past, and what a softly glowing evening of life would then lie before us. This picture of the happy old couple, into which we should then have turned, I have set before myself so often and so livelily, that it became quite clearly stamped on my mind, and even reproduced itself in dreams as if it had really happened with various details, Frederick in a velvet skull-cap with a pair of gardening shears. I have no notion why, for he had never shown any love for gardening, and there had yet been no talk of any skull-cap. I with a very coquettishly arranged black lace mantilla over my silvery hair, and as a surrounding for all this a corner of the park, warmly lighted by the setting summer sun, and friendly looks and words smilingly exchanged the while. Do you know now? Do you recollect the time when? Many of the previous pages have I written with shuddering and self-compulsion. It was not without inward horror that I could describe the scenes through which I passed in my journey to Bohemia and the caller a week at Grumitz. I have done it in order to obey my sense of duty. Beloved lips once gave me the solemn command, In case I die before you, you must take my task in hand and labor for the work of peace. If this binding injunction had not been laid on me, I could never have so far prevailed over myself as to tear open the agonized wounds of my reminiscences so unsparingly. Now, however, I have come to an event which I will relate, but which I will not, nor can I, describe. No, I cannot. I cannot. I have tried ten half-written torn pages are lying on the floor by the side of my writing-table, but a heart-pang seized me, my thoughts froze up or got into wild entanglement in my brain, and I had to throw the pen aside and weep bitter, hot tears with cries like a child. Now, a few hours afterwards, I resume my pen, but as to describing the particulars of the next event, as to relating what I felt when it happened, I must give that up. The thing itself is sufficient. Frederick, my own one, was in consequence of a letter from Berlin that was found in his house, suspected of espionage, was surrounded by a mob of fanatics crying, A mort! A mort! Le Prussien! dragged before a tribunal of patriots, and on February 1st, 1871, shot by order of a court martial. End of chapter 18. Read by Sandra.